This is Quian Tran, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben Rock. How are you? I am doing swell, Ilya Friedman. How are you? I'm doing okay. Hey, who's on the show today? It is Kian Tran, who is returning for, I believe, the third time. Woohoo! That's an elite club of uh, third timers. Th- three timers club. Yeah, we need to get them like a like a smoking jacket <laughs> with some elbow reinforcements and patches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. She's awesome, and you conducted the interview, which I have not heard yet. So I'll, I'll be hearing it live with our audience. That's right. That's a lie. And, uh, I, we record these and then they add it later. So I'll be hearing it maybe, you know, like when the episode drops. So, Ben, it's an interesting week, uh, interesting milestone. Uh-oh. I wanted to, to uh, bring up for our close focus uh, this week that there is now a video oh, no. on YouTube that has been viewed more than 10 billion times. This is, wow. Uh, this is, that's equivalent to every single person on Earth having viewed it 1.3 times. So that means that there are just people out there who are watching it over and over and over again, because I'm sure there's some people who have never seen it. But of course, what I'm talking about is Baby Shark Dance. Oh, I would have assumed it was Gangnam Style. Oh, no. The, the Gangnam Style has been lapped several times now by the Baby Shark Dance. Do, 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 do. Yes, the, yes that, that one. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. but uh, Yeah, yeah. No, I have to say that I'd heard uh, legends from parents about this Baby Shark thing I'd be encountering when I became a parent. And uh, I was kind of bracing for it. I got to be honest. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking forward to the Baby Shark thing. Now, that, I mean, I've been here now for almost four years. And I got to say, Baby Shark is the least of my problems. Baby Shark is not <laughs> ba- Baby Shark is not my favorite song. It's not my least favorite song. So that you're just talking about just the regular old Baby Shark, Baby Shark, Mommy baby Shark, shark. Yeah, Daddy that, Shark. That's, that's the one. The so one it, thing is, is narratively, it does kind of go on a little too long. Also, I feel like I just have a criticism. I have notes. And my, my biggest note is that, firstly, the song is not about the Baby Shark at all. It's about a shark family. The baby shark is one character in the shark family. It would be like if Happy Days was called Mrs. Cunningham. It's like, yeah, she's in it. She's in it, sure. Show's not about her. But, you know, you're going to overlook Richie. You're going to overlook Al. You're going to overlook the Fonz. You're going to overlook everyone. Yeah. 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 Mr. C, everybody. Ralph Malf. Yeah. So so that's the problem. Potsy. But, But then here's the real problem. I mean, you know, maybe this is just very intentional. Maybe Baby Shark is like a mini Rashomon because halfway, not even halfway through, like three quarters of the way through Baby Shark, it shifts point of view. Mm, It's true. So they say, let's go hunt. Right. And then we go to the point of view of a bunch of fish and they go run away. And then from that point forward, we're with the fish. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of Baby Shark. The whole shark family, they say, safe at last, right? You know, safe at last. They're all safe, and they're hanging out in a coral reef. The fish that are running from this shark family, that's this massive, horrible shark family. They're all safe at last. And then we see the shark family kind of rise up behind the coral reef with, like, uh, napkins and forks and knives. And the thing about Baby Shark is, like, 0.5 seconds after the song is over, those critters are all dead. Like, the water's just full of chum. 
they're they're gone. But like, what does it say about the world that uh, every man, woman, and child on Earth has seen Baby Shark one point? What'd you say? One point three times. One point three times. So yes, it is called the Baby Shark dance to be clear and let me tell you i'm glad that it's no problem for you but for i think for a lot of other people out there it's it's fingernails on a blackboard but really really? everyone else out there who's trying to do something trying to get views trying to get exposure they're doing it wrong really what they all they needed to do was come up with an earworm was come up with the kids jingle essentially something that you'd expect to see like you know for a fast food restaurant and Before you know it, someone's going to, you know, make a uh, hundred different covers of it. They're going to make the. the oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Baby the, Shark the is like in, it's like an open ended sandbox world of improv. Like every other kids channel copies Baby Shark you and uses the basic structure of it. And they'll do like Baby Shark Halloween and Baby Shark Thanksgiving. And I'm like, what do sharks have to do with Thanksgiving? It's really frustrating. <laughs> and of course, for our listeners who are not up on their Akira Kurosawa, but you know, Rashomon is of course the 1950s uh, samurai film. And uh, clearly there's this uh, perspective shift. So if you uh, would like to really bring this home, go pop in like Canopy right now and, and watch some Rashomon and yeah. it'll bring this whole Baby Shark thing all the way. Yeah, no, I circle. think it'll make yeah. Baby Shark will make a whole lot more sense. <laughs> or you can watch Baby Shark. And the thing is, like, if, if you don't have kids, you've definitely never seen Baby Shark. And then when I hear what, uh, every man, woman, and child, you know, like how many billions of times have you have 10 billion? Yeah. 10 billion. I mean, like, I'm like, well, clearly uh, one billion of those is just at my house. <laughs> yes, that's probably true. But like you know, before you have kids, you would have no reason to watch this. zero. And the yeah. thing is, it's not bad. But it's not kind of bad. uh, It's all right. And like the animation quality is like, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. And probably like a lot of things like this, my guess is when they came up with it, they didn't think, oh, this is going to take over the universe. All right. I got I got one more for you, though. Okay. And this is directly related. The earnings report has come out for the highest paid YouTubers. I don't know if you you saw this one, but uh, the number one person, most popular, highest income full time YouTuber out there is a gentleman named Mr. Beast. And Mr. Beast, you want to take a just a wild stab, wild, you know, guess at how much he raked in in 2021. I'm going to go with uh, can we do prices right rules so I can guess as high as possible without going over? Sure, we can do that if you want. I'm going to say 15 million. One five, 15 million? 15 million. Yeah, uh, 54 million. Whoa. Yes, you were, you were way way down on the price, right? 54 million. And like there's several other people who they, they didn't surpass him, but they were they were up in the 30s and 40s and of millions too. So it's like those advertising dollars and those sponsored uh, videos and posts and stuff they make. I'm actually a little bit concerned about having this information go out there because I think there's a whole bunch of people now who are going to say, screw going into the entertainment industry. I'm going for YouTube. YouTube is really where the money is. So. Well, okay, but uh, this is, uh, and this is a longer conversation than we're going to have here, but I feel like this is a conversation that's been ongoing for a long time. I have a friend who I've probably brought up on the show before named Chad Saley. He actually worked for Maker Studios for a, mm-hmm. a long time, and Maker was kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of YouTubers, and you know, he's my age. He has two kids who are, I think, both in their 20s now because I I just waited till I was elderly to have a child. And I remember 15 years ago him telling me, like, TV's dead, movie's dead. All the kids want to watch are these YouTube characters. They want to watch YouTubers. They want to watch, you know, people who are vlogging on YouTube or people who have these YouTube channels. And I feel like, you know, the media landscape has been 
ever more uh, diversified is the nice way to say it. It splintered into a thousand directions. You know, when you and I were kids, we had limited choices, to say the least. And now we have, you know, virtually infinite choices. Yeah. When when you consider what's on YouTube and I, I watch a fair amount of it myself, but I've had to ask myself over and over again, is it the same? And the answer is no, it is not the same. Like what these people do is not the same. And there are people who are doing stuff like that, who you could see on television, but to swing it back around to the kids stuff, uh, there's a kid's Mm. channel called Blippi. And if you want to talk about the bane of parents existence, Blippi is the worst, but like crazy successful. I have it blocked on our YouTube at home, so my son just doesn't even bother getting into it in the first place. And if you want your brain to melt, go on YouTube and look it up. Um, you know, I'm going to just throw this in here real quick because I know you have a connection with it. But, you know, the, the fourth highest YouTuber actually is clients of, of Hot Rod Cameras. It's a guy's named Rhett and Link. They've got a show called Good Mythical oh, yeah, they're Morning. Huge. Yeah, not only are they huge, I mean, they're, you know, generationally speaking, they're quite a bit older than I think most of the people who are watching them. But they certainly, I guess, skew young and uh, their company actually acquired Smosh. And I know you have a connection to Smosh because you were up at one point. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, Smosh is one of the interesting case studies in that I was up to direct a movie for them that was made. It's called Ghost Mates. It's on YouTube. (laughs) It was made for YouTube Red and now it's just on YouTube for free and you can watch it. And I had a meeting with those guys and I remember asking them, like, what's your goal in doing this? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking what? You know, my friend Chad had said years earlier, which is like, this generation is not going to want television or movies. And they said what I think is a quite reasonable thing. They're like, yeah, we're, tr- we're trying to broaden our audience. Thing is, those guys started making YouTube videos when they were in their teens. And at that point, when I met with them, they were like in their late 20s, early 30s. And it's like, how much longer are you going to do essentially sketch comedy for, you know, 14 year olds? But it turns out forever. The answer is forever. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, if Rhett and Link are any indication, you know, they're they're making money, and that the, the but appetite Rhett and Link for are this, doing are yeah. doing more are doing a more mature thing, aren't they? That's true. Yeah, well, it that show, I, I I hesitate to call the show mature, but I, I suppose that you could. Well, but you, you could do, watch, okay, but you do see shows on there sometimes that you could see on television, and then sometimes you see stuff where you're just like, why are four million people watching this, and I'll never understand, and. Part of that is like, I'll have to go, okay, it's out of my experience. You know, like I'm the wrong age group. I'm the wrong gender. I'm the wrong race. I'm the wrong whatever to, to find this interesting. But obviously a lot of people do. A long, long time ago, I was hired literally to run camera, to run B camera, but it was really A camera for a Q&A of some YouTube stars being moderated by a YouTube star. And when it was, oh, and they were all very articulate and smart and interesting, cool people. Then the next day I went and looked up their stuff because I was just curious. And the two people who were the main people being interviewed, their stuff was like if, if you and I decided to make a comedy sketch show on our iPhone five minutes before we shot it, it would be like that quality. <laughs> and, well, and that well, was one of them. And the other one was a guy who was monologuing into his phone in his bathroom and saying, like, honestly, misogynistic, antisocial stuff, but getting a huge following doing it. Weirdly, the moderator, I went and looked at his stuff and I'm like, this guy could be on Saturday Night Live. His stuff is so slick, so mm-hmm. polished, so so well mm-hmm. done, so smart, so funny. And that guy is, I think, still kind of a big deal in that world, but was doing stuff at a at, at like a level millions of light years beyond what the two people he was interviewing were doing. And I'm like, why did they why aren't they interviewing you? You're the good one here. But what do you do? <laughs> well, if, if anyone goes to the Good Mythical Morning show and watches the most recent video, it's uh, the human teabag challenge. And I will say that this is pretty in, you know, endemic of the, of the type of stuff they do. Where See, I said someone- mature, right? 
Yeah, very mature. <laughs> so it's a, there's a there's a bunch of like someone being bathed in honey and you know tea being thrown on them and then being put in a big thing of water. It's like it reminds me of like 1980s. I'm dating myself. Double Dare. Remember that that show, the Nickelodeon show, or and inevitably everyone got covered in slime or something. It's there's yeah, a lot of that. I, I mean, like to me, I think that there's some people like that who have figured out a way to make what would in another universe be on some cable network kind of show that would run for however long it ran and then get canceled or whatever based on whatever the network's needs or priorities were. But these people have figured out a way to plug into a repeatable audience and just keep on keeping on. That's right. And they can do this as long as they want. And at a certain point, yeah, the audience is going to start getting distracted or bored or not returning for anything that anyone does, no matter how awesome it is. But I kind of have to tip my hat to people like that who basically have figured out a way to kind of green light themselves and keep themselves renewed year after year. Smosh being another one like, you know, I, I was really impressed when I saw how much work those guys had done when I went into, you know, because I when I went to meet with them, I I did I watched a bunch of their stuff. It wasn't exactly my flavor of comedy all the time, but sometimes it was, and it was really well done. And it's been a while. Like there was a time I remember when I was up for a job and I was bidding on it, and we were like trying to get a red camera or something. And they were like, "Oh no, it doesn't need to look that good. It's just for the internet." And when they said that, <laughs> I immediately lost all interest in working for this client on this project. It's like, oh, sure. we, we don't want it to look good. That we called you. But, uh, but yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly. But I feel like that ship has, has long sailed because like you could have 4k content on YouTube. You could be watching YouTube. People are watching YouTube on the same, very same televisions. They're watching everything else on. And so, you know, to kind of loop it back to the baby shark thing, it's like the phenomenology of YouTube is interesting because it is so random looking, but really it is just a cross section of us of all of us of of everybody and the stuff we watch you know when i need to figure out how to put windshield wiper fluid in my car i look on youtube when i'm trying to find out how to do something in adobe premiere i look on youtube but also a lot of us go to youtube on a regular basis for entertainment and you know i I may be watching corridor crew every week but somebody else is watching Rhett and link or somebody else is what you know and and uh, the baby shark thing i mean like uh I don't, I don't even know what to say about the baby shark thing. All I'll say is uh, there's a lot of toddlers who know how to find a video on YouTube if they want it. And so, uh, again, I, I really do feel like at least 10 billion of those views were in my house. Well, uh, well, that would mean that all the views were in your house. But I, I think that that's a, a good place for us to, to leave our, our immersively leave our close focus discussion of, of YouTube today. And let's get to the interview with Kian Tran. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Quian Tran, thank you so much for coming back for the third time to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure talking with you. Hey, a lot happened in 2021. Let me just do a quick rundown. I don't think we talked about directors of photography last time you were here. You became a member of the ASC like what six months ago something like that so that's kind of like a, a big deal and now you're directing uh, i mean we're, we're gonna get into all this stuff but uh tell me 2021 pretty decent year uh not a great year all for things the wo- considered yeah not a great year for the world <laughs> but in my small pocket of the universe you know i i really am very grateful for everything that's happened and the opportunities that i've been given so no complaints here 
Tell us about directors of photography. And and I know that it doesn't essentially come through the way I'm saying it. It really should be emphasized dough rectors of photography because it's all about baking. It's it's an incredible thing that you kind of uh, started. Give us the elevator pitch for your uh, your little side hustle. <laughs> it's one of my many side hustles. So last year, 2020 summer, during all the protests, my dear friend, colleague, and fellow director of photography, Jean Tyson, and I decided to start a charity because we have a shared love of baking. We've been bakers our whole lives, and we got into sourdough like everybody else during the pandemic. But we took it one step further. We both grew up pretty, I don't want to say poor, but yeah, you know, my family lived off food stamps, and uh, my mother was always cooking for friends and family and, and just very selfless. And, and in Jeanne's family also, they do a lot of volunteer and charity work. So we both decided to start a charity where we would sell our sourdough baked goods for organizations like the Los Angeles Food Bank, Stop AAPI Hate, Vote Save America, pretty much anything that we felt needed, you know, support. And it was just it just took off, and we're really proud of the work that we've accomplished, and we're still going. We just made patches that you can um, awesome. iron on to your backpack or your, your shirt, if you so desire. I'm totally getting into that. Uh, awesome. I already have your stickers yeah. that, that we're, we're quite enjoying, and holy crap, do we enjoy your cookies and sourdough. They both were, you know, dynamite. So if anyone in the side of my, of my voice is interested in this and you're in Los Angeles, give us the URL. Where can people find out more about directors? We're just on Instagram still. You know, we made these stickers, bake it till we make it back to set. Nice. But in August of 2020, I started working again on the show called Made and I haven't stopped since. So We've been trying to balance out, you know, work with bake life, work bake li- balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, work bake balance. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, the struggle is real for sure. It's a okay. Well, definitely, we'll put the Instagram handle in our show notes, so anyone who wants to check out directors of photography can go do that. Let's talk about the ASC. Congratulations! That's a, that's a huge honor. That, Thank that's that's so uh, that's that's wonderful. And for people who are unaware, who are listening right now, it's an invite only organization, and you have to have a vote, uh, essentially, of all of your peers saying we want to bring this person into the fold. Uh, tell us a little bit about being now an ASC member. It hasn't really changed how I view the world or how I approach my work, uh, except maybe now I'm like, oh my gosh. These letters are appearing now after my name. It, it's real. Oh, my gosh. I got to I got to do good work. So, you know, every time I'm on a job, I'm like, OK, I have to maintain this level of professionalism and the integrity of my work. And that it hasn't really changed much, except I get to put these incredible letters behind my name. But, you know, it's a huge honor. And I, I'm just so thrilled and so excited to be a member nice. It can really take over your life. There's so much stuff that's that's going on through the ASC. Hey, uh, let's talk about MADE. Really, that's kind of like what I feel like the other big thing is and the thing that we should be talking about. I loved it. It is actually my favorite series this year. It's a favorite. My The most favorite thing I've seen on television this year is MADE. And uh, what a tremendous project. Uh, and Riley is incredible. Holy crap. I have never seen a child actor like a four-year-old perform the way she does she is absolutely amazing and the whole show the whole cast the everything that goes into it is is stunningly entertaining and beautiful and poignant and touching and uh and you know my myself uh 
talking about humble beginnings, grew up without a lot of means. Uh, my parents, uh, when I was a, a little howly boy growing up in Maui, lived in a trailer without electricity or running water. And my earliest memory, I can't believe I'm going to share this on the podcast, is when my parents decided to dig an outhouse. So digging an outhouse is my my, my earliest memory. But yes, it is. Uh, I, I got to say, I really sort of related to subsistence living and struggle and trying to achieve and come forward and make uh, your way in the world. And that's these are all themes that, that really run through, along with domestic abuse and violence and other sorts of things in this project. So I've now talked for way too long about it. You tell me how you came to MADE and tell me about this experience. Well, overall, I mean, it was just incredible from the people involved, the cast, John Wells, Molly, Metzler. I mean, everyone involved was so passionate, but it also felt like we were at camp because we were shooting in Victoria, B.C. We we had to quarantine for 14 days because this was like at the height of the pandemic. It was the first show I was going back to, the first show that John was going back to. And so there was a lot of unknown variables. We got shut down three times. Uh, you know, oh, it was no. like... Really? Yeah, because there was like a positive case and no one really knew what the protocol should be yet. So we shut down. You know, there's just a lot of uncertainty. But what we all knew was that the story was special. And so we, you know, persevered and I left my family and that was a big thing as well. That's why I told John I could only do the pilot block because I had to go I had to go home afterwards. I couldn't be gone for like nine months straight. And that was really hard. So, you know, I brought my my good friend Guy Godfrey on to take over after the pilot block. But, you know, it was an incredible experience. I have very fond memories. I miss Riley. You know, I'll send you some BTS shots, but like I pulled out all my parenting tricks. I gave her piggyback rides. <laughs> I did this like circus thing where I lie on my back and I have her like sitting on my feet and and I'm just like tossing her up and down. And her parents were like, "Yeah, you're you're such a pro." Like I was like, "Okay, Riley. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna say these lines and you're gonna run that way, okay? And grab the streamer and then wave. Here we go." She's like, "Okay, one more circus trick." I'm like, oh, "Okay, let's do it." So it was. <laughs> she was putting you to work. She was putting me yeah, to work. You had to work for that. She sure was. But you know, I treated her like one of my own, and it was really special. I, I just have nothing but fond memories. But it was really hard because of COVID. Because of the weather, the elements, everything. So nine months to shoot the uh, the limited series. What was originally scheduled? How how long did you guys think it this was going to take? I think the end date was supposed to be mid March, but we ended up going to like the second week of April because of the shutdowns and, and weather and just other things. But so it wasn't that off the target. But you know, John Wells is an incredible producer, and he is just one of the you know most experienced TV people out there. And he really sets a high precedent and sets a fantastic tone on set and, and leading the charge in the pilot and, and all the pre-production. And, you know, and John also comes from a, a pretty modest background. So he really was able to relate. Tell us about some of the challenges that came up besides being shut down. I have to imagine uh, the environment and the changing weather and just being on the show for a long period of time presented uh, a bunch of challenges, but also working with a child who's only able to be there for a limited amount of time. How did this all go down? Imagine having, at the time, a three-year-old in every scene. That's really tough. Need I say more? <laughs> Incredibly Need tough. I say more? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to have a child at home, but to get that child to do everything you ask for multiple times. It's very challenging. And Riley is a superstar. 
I mean, yes, it took a lot of circus tricks and and piggyback rides and and pony ride, what have you. But at the end of the day, I have just an incredible respect for this young child because she and Margaret had to carry the whole show. That yeah. is a big ask. And Margaret's amazing. And I know that a lot of hay has been made about already about her actually being Andy McDowell's real life daughter. And they had never been in anything together before. But one of the stories I thought was really quite interesting was that it was actually Margaret's idea to reach out to her mother to bring her into this whole thing. And Andy McDowell is so fantastic in this, too, playing this uh, this really, really big character. Can you talk about uh, the interpersonal relationships of the, the cast and the crew at all and how it all came together? Was everyone as happy to be doing this as it seems? Yes. I, was, I mean, I was there from the beginning. I remember like pitching all the different actresses who could play her mother. And then one day Margaret was like, what about my mom? You know, she is, if you go back and you look at her resume, Andy's resume, she's been a part of like so many incredible films. This role was very challenging and it's unlike any of her previous roles. So I think for Andy, it was exciting. And not only that, she gets to play opposite her real life daughter. So I think, can, I mean, just imagine working with your mom on set every day for nine months. You know, that can be challenging sure. as well. Throw in a three-year-old and, <laughs> and there you had the trifecta. So it really behooved us to have a real life mother and daughter because they worked out a lot of stuff on set. But I think it really added to the scenes and it really plays out. And there's just a real honesty between them. And I think what's even more interesting is people don't realize that Margaret is Andy's daughter because they have different last names. And so when it comes out, it's like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. But the dynamic on set, you know, it was hard at times. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. It was if you can imagine, like, you know, there would be tension between, you know, what each character is feeling. But then you throw in, OK, now the, it's real life mother and daughter and then adding that on top of the scene. So it, there was a lot of discussion. But I think. At the end of each scene, we always got to a fantastic place. I'll agree. And the show moves really, really well. And I think that uh, editors get a lot of credit for pacing, but the director of photography gets should, should get about equal credit for pacing in, in projects. And the, this show flows so well from uh, scene to scene and from episode to episode. Beats are hit and move on in a way that never feel redundant and always feel like it's progressing the story. Can you tell me at all about the discussions about like pacing and how the show moves? Because really, it's tight. This is a tight show. There is not a lot of waste. There's not a lot of fat. It is like this, this show really moves. And it's the type of show that you immediately grab hold, I think, of the of the character's plight and you're you're in it for the long run. Can you talk at all about how you guys were just would discuss pacing or, or how you were going to move the show around? Yeah, absolutely. It was a very specific look. I shot extensive camera tests with Margaret and Nick and at the time, a younger Maddie who actually was recast once Riley. Riley was actually a photo double. Oh, wow. And she became the principal after we shot the camera tests. And that's <laughs> that's why you shoot camera tests. You have to see if the chemistry works between actors and <laughs> if a three-year-old can act. So that was very informative and very telling. But I shot very extensive tests for the look. And by shooting a handheld camera, tracking subjectively with our protagonists, never leaving her space, you create this intimacy and you're forcing a perspective on the viewer. And that was very intentional. And every time we flash back, we would go to a different lens. We call it the cue loving 
because I worked with Panavision and they designed a specific look for me. I, I pulled a bunch of references. I was kind of mimicking the black wings a little bit with the rainbow flares because I wanted those flashbacks to feel incredibly visceral and special. And so I shot all those on one lens with that specific detuning that I work uh-huh. very closely with Panavision to achieve. Is this and a Dan I, Sasaki uh, original then for you? Yeah. And I also use uh, live grain. I'm giving away all my secrets. No. <laughs> I also use um, live grain, which I push to like a, a two stop of Super 16 um, and, and increase the tonality on that to give it even more of like kind of, I don't want to say that Polaroid vibe, but, you know, some kind of nostalgic feeling. And so I did a lot of testing with my colorist, Tim Stippen, over at Company 3. And I think we landed on something special because, you know, it's easy to like go to these flashbacks and and make it kind of cheesy and beautiful. But I wanted it to be like a memory. And so uh, I made sure that the movement, the camera movement and the flashbacks was different from the scene we were cutting from. Sonny of Live Grain is a good friend of the show, and so uh, I, I'm sure that he will greatly appreciate your plugs. So. I, I always, I'm always selling Sonny and uh, like to everyone because Sonny and I actually go way back as well. We went to UCLA together. Nice. I miss Sonny. I haven't seen him since the pandemic. I, I'm sure he's well, but uh, but yeah, I uh, I love seeing his logo pop up in the credits on things all the time. It's it's the best. So uh, it's a great look. It's a great look for the sh- for the show. But uh, I'm curious about pacing. If there was any, if there was ever really a thought of like you know we got six pages here, it needs to feel like three pages. Or ha- how about when you throw in the mix of of a child actor? I have to imagine that the whole thing just gets that much more complicated. And I have to imagine that the first AD probably had to be very uh, kid friendly. So. <laughs> really had yeah. to really, you know, keep it all moving together. Tell me about how the show flowed. So John and I would block out the scene, and John is a master of blocking. He likes to keep things moving, mm. not just, you know, the words being spoken, but the movement of the actors. You know, he didn't want anyone to, like, walk three steps, stop, talk. I mean, this is a man who did ER and West Wing. He is the master of the walk and talk. And so I learned so much about blocking through him. And, you know, it, it just flowed very organically. So, for example, when in the in the pilot episode, when she leaves, we shot that as a one basically, like from inside the trailer to outside. So I had a light 360 in all directions, getting into a car, seeing, you know, Sean pound on the wind. All that is done as a one because it builds attention. And that was what was really important on Made is that... It's so tense already, but by not cutting, you're also extending that. And it just makes you like so anxious and nervous because you have no idea what's going to happen. And since you stay with her POV, you're with her and you're seeing it as it's happening from her perspective. And so you're never cutting outside the car, for example, when she leaves for the first time. And we see Sean revealed by the headlights and then the pounding and then like pan over to her and she's like driving. That was all done practically. Wow. It was very, very hard um, from a lighting perspective and an operating perspective. But, you know, that's what we were going for. So, yeah, there's a quite a few different sort of looks and set pieces. And, and the trailer is a, is a big one of them. But I was going to say that uh, in order to work in a trailer like that size and everything, too, it, it must have been very challenging. Or did you build some of that on a stage as well? Or was it all location? It was all location except for my episode eight, because I wanted to have a couch that swallowed her. And yeah. I needed an exit point. So I built, 
I, ha- I work very closely with my very dear friend now and an incredible production designer, Renee Reed, who we worked for three weeks to design a couch that would pull her in in a very organic way. So I wanted, I knew I wanted like Margaret to look up and to like slide in and not blink. And I, so in the real trailer, we couldn't cut a hole in the wall. So I was like, can we build this on stage? And we did. And you totally pulled it off too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was great. Um, I know you to be a wonderful combination of both artist and plumber. You're very technical and you're also very, you know, have very uh, artistic vision, but, uh, and we don't talk a lot about tech on the show, but I'm really curious about this because um, I enjoyed it so much and it's a fantastic look. Tell me a little bit about the technology of how the, the visuals of made came together. So in deciding formats for MADE, I went with the Alexa Mini LF, and I tested a bunch of lenses and landed on the Panaspeeds because they have this very vintage, soft look, and I wanted the show to feel as organic as possible. I knew that we would be doing a lot of handheld and a lot of close camera-to-subject distance, so a very intimate view on wide lenses never ignoring the context of the space because the world is such a strong character in the show. You know, the show is about poverty. It's about domestic abuse. It's about raising a child as a single parent. It's about, you know, emotional distress and bipolar and anxiety. There's just so many subjects to tackle that, you know, we really wanted to capture it as a whole. So I did not want a very fast fall off between subject and background. And that's where large format really brings your subject so close to the viewer in a way that feels like you're right there. And that's why I wanted the viewer, viewer to feel like they were a fly on the wall, but a very active fly that's buzzing around the subject as opposed to like observational. I wanted it to be very subjective and inclusive. So I did a lot of testing and I created this lookbook that the other DPs, um, Vincent DePaula and Guy Godfrey, could look at and pick up and have a you know something in their hands as a reference as they continue the series, and they both did a fantastic job. And it's an interesting line of tone in Made because there's a lot of you know heavy subject matter, but there is also these moments of lightness. But it's interesting because it's only light to the audience. It's not necessarily light to the protagonist who, you know, and I'm thinking specifically of sort of like the CG effects of every time uh, she has to contemplate in her brain how much money she has left and how much everything is costing. Like these are potentially really funny moments, especially with the sound effects for the audience, but not for the protagonist who's like, oh my God, this, I don't have enough money to make it through. And it's a wonderful tone and juxtaposition that's happening between what you're seeing on screen and then what's added in to the story to give the audience that, you know, hey, it's okay to laugh right now. It's okay to, you know, to, to look at the absurdity at what, at what's going on. So, I mean, was there a lot of uh, discussion about like, you know, Hey, we need a frame to make space for the CG that's happening here. We need to, we need to hold on this shot long enough for the, the mental reaction. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how those sort of moments of striking that juxtaposition between serious and, and comedy comes together? Absolutely. In the scene in the pilot where she's filling up the gas, I'm operating the camera and as I'm tilting down to the nozzle going in and I tilt back up, I, I short side her so that I can leave some negative space for the prices to come up. And in my mind, I'm going, okay, 379, 389, three, and like, ding. And then so like I'm calculating in my head and then we go, go. And she 
she you know takes the nozzle out. So we were actually doing it on set. We knew it was going to happen. We we did actually in the camera tests. I did that. I I had like a short side diversion, a medium side. We were like, okay, what is going to work best when we superimpose these numbers? Should we be in a close up so that we can see the calculations in our head? Should we be in a medium shot? And it worked best in a close up because you know with Margaret's eyes and her expression, it's just so she's just you know takes up the whole screen and you don't want to look away. So you're looking at her reaction and you see the numbers. So we found that it worked best in a close-up. So when we were shooting it, it was very intentional. We always left negative space for those moments because they were scripted. And, and yeah, Margaret Qualley's Alex is such a fantastic protagonist and, and lead character flawed, like all great protagonists, I believe. And really, really, you, you can't help but just, I think, fall into those eyes. You do do such a wonderful close-ups on her that it really, she wears her heart on her face and you really get to see the, the emotional reaction of those scenes. And I think that's, it's a big part of, of what makes that show work is, is the, uh, the intimacy that you've got between, you know, these, these close-ups on relatively wide lenses with, uh, with, with her. And, you know, you see all the gears turning of like, oh man, how do I get to the next point? And uh, I think that that's what makes the show so relatable to so many people out there. And the other thing Molly talked about extensively was levity. Mm. You know, you, you, no one wants to watch a show that is so dark and dismal. So it was really important to have those moments of levity in it. You know, like the moment she calls basil cilantro. You know, there's like little <laughs> things here and there that are just like so funny. But, you know, it's also so dire. But, you know, we have to laugh at that. There's no comedy without drama and vice versa. So, And, and you know, and this is a, a wonderful natural transition point. Tell me about being a director. Tell, go, tell me about going from director of photography to director. And uh, is this scratching an itch of something you've always wanted to do? Or is this, uh, is, well, tell, tell me about this process. Well, it came about because John, after we shot the pilot, he really wanted me to come back for the finale. And I was like, you know what? Let me talk to my family this the pandemic is still raging on. This is right after Thanksgiving and Christmas and the cases were surging. And he kind of dangled that DGA carrot in front of me and I, I bit, I took it. I was like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? He was like, no. He's like, you're ready. I was like, uh, I, I, scary. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to say like, oh yeah, it's so easy. You know, I was like, sometimes, oh, maybe, maybe someday I'll, I'll do it. But it was never like I never became a cinematographer to become a director. I always came from a visual story to like background with my photojournalism or or painting. So it was never like a stepping stone towards directing. But I was so engrossed by these characters and the story that I knew I could do it because I knew the story so well inside and out. Well, I think you pulled it off really well. And I know it's a different muscle for sure to exercise than working in and purely as a crafter of images and a motivator of your team, because so much of, of being a DP really is is also management, management of people and everything else. Now, as a director, you're connecting prim primarily with the actors and maybe with your DP and some other people, of course. But uh, how did you prepare for this? Did you uh, read some books, take some classes? Did you just no. win it? How, how, did you, how did you go about, uh, be, be, you know? trying something new like this well i had directed in film school hmm. so that, I, was a, I, that was a couple of years ago like 16 oh my god <laughs> um 
So I had experience directing, and, and then I also directed a bunch of commercials. But, you know, it's different when you're working with a narrative format. So as a DP and an operator, you're working very closely with the actors. And I already had a, a rapport with Margaret and, and everyone on the cast. So it was pretty easy to transition into directing because I'm just talking to them. But, and, but instead of saying, hey, uh, you know, feel free to hit this mark. If not, it's okay. It was more like, okay, this scene is about this at this moment, you know, prior to this, remember we're coming from this moment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I prepared really intensely. I, I storyboarded everything. Mm-hmm. I drew my own storyboards and shot lists. And, and I actually um, had all these like lighting. <laughs> so I, I prepared as a DP and a director because my, my DP guy, Godfrey was actually shooting episode six and seven. And I, <laughs> I forced him to stay on for eight. And I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to prepare everything. And I did. I did the tech scout for both of us and did everything for both of us. And and he came in and like nailed it. So I, I was able to focus on on just the directing aspect at that point. So now that you've successfully directed a, a, a key episode in the series, future ambitions, you think you might try it again? You think you might want to direct some more television? You think that there's there's more of this in your future? Yeah, I think I definitely want to direct more. I I am signed on to do a year long project as DP. So mm-hmm. it's going to have to be in the back burner for a year. But, you know, I'm I'm totally cool with that. You know, I, I don't want to abandon my cinematography at all. Like, I, I love shooting. I, I worked really hard as a DP and I want to continue. There are many people out there who both are able to be successful as a DP and a director simultaneously. I think most notably off the top of my head is like Alex Sakharov. He's a friend of the show and he did tons of uh, tons of both and overlapped for, for a while. And uh, of course, there's people like Barry Sonnenfeld who, you know, went on and, and became a you know, full director. I, I have no doubt that that you can straddle that line for a while. But uh, if you decide that you you want to go that route, we'd still love to have you back on the show and talk all about your, your directing work in the future. So Thank you so much. So what's next for you? You, you're, you tease this this year long project. You, I don't know if you can say anything about it, but uh, but uh, wh- where is it going to take you in the world? Do you get to sleep in your own bed, or do you have to travel somewhere? What, what's going on? It's in L.A. Yay! I'm That's so great. my family is so thrilled. I am so happy. Oh my gosh, it's a dream come true. It really is. The project is is really special, and I can't wait to talk about it next year. I'm just really trying to enjoy the moment with Made because it's not often that a story this powerful and intense and emotional and beautiful comes along. And I, I'm just incredibly grateful that Molly and John came to me after watching my work on Unbelievable, which was another you know very intense show, but very important, I think. So I, I you know looking forward, I, I really want to focus on stories that have meaning. And I think everyone here, can say that about the pandemic and what clarity it's brought them. You know, you you think about what's important in life and you think about your family and how short life is. So I think moving forward, I know moving forward that I want to really focus on, on stories that are impactful and just compelling in some manner. I think that's a, a great place to leave it. I'm certain that you're going to get your wish, especially after Made here. This is so, so great. Q, thank you so much for being on the show for the third time, and I can't wait to have you back again. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right. So that was Kian Tran. Hey, back for the third time. Fantastic. Third time. Really? Now, yeah. now we got to get her on for a fourth. Now it's That's a race. Right. It's a race between <laughs> like her and Checo Varese and Fade and Papa Michael. That's right. Who who will get to number four? Yeah, there can be only one. We, I think we have to make them <laughs> Actually, fight. I, that's not true. They can all get to number four. That's true. Really, no, eventually, no, eventually, we're going to get, yeah. There's no stakes, really. <laughs> who will like, be, be the first DP to get to 10 interviews on our show? Mm, you know, I think it's going to be a dark horse. I, I think that maybe Johnny Durango might power back. Johnny Durango? The... <laughs> I, love, I, I love Johnny. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be great to have him back nine more times. Just, just wait. We'll, we'll have him like a guest host or something. He'll, he'll be here all the time. He's so. Johnny's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ilya, you know what? You know what time it is. I do know what time it is. Uh, it is time to pay the bills. So take it away. <laughs> all right. So first of all, let's thank our friends over at Assemble.tv who are doing that. Still continuing the super cool free promo code for anyone who wants to type in Cinepod. Get a month free of Assemble.tv service, which of course is industry-leading calendar and all sorts of great productivity tools for anyone who's involved in production. You should totally check them out. It is badass. You should do it. Try it. It's free. All right. So, hey, we also need to thank our friends over at DZO. DZO Film, makers of fine entry-level cinema lenses. They make a series of primes. They also make two different types of zooms. The latest zooms, which are coincidentally now in stock over at Hot Ride Cameras, are called the Kata Zooms, which is C-A-T-T-A. And what makes them interesting is they're very affordable full frame zoom lenses. And there's not a lot of full frame cinema style zoom lenses out there. And when you factor in the price with these things, it's really impressive. And they're only available currently on a couple of different mounts, uh, mirrorless mounts, but PL mount is coming a little bit later. And I know we've got a think it's the RF mount versions in right now, which are very popular for people who are into Canon cameras or the red Komodo and, and things like that. Sweet, sweet, sweet. What, what, what kinds of uh, focal lengths are on those zoom lenses? Well, it's two lenses. Uh, the first one is a 35 to 80 again, full frame. So 35 is actually still relatively wide for a full frame lens and then a 70 to 135. Whoa. And they come in a, they come in a really cool kit and, uh, it's totally worth checking out and you can find them over at hot rod cameras and we will put a link in the show notes over at cam noir. And I want to say that both lenses are under $6,000. I want to say it's about 5,900 bucks, like 5,899, which is ridiculously inexpensive for full frame cinema zooms. That's amazing. And you can pick up them individually for slightly more per lens. I want to say it's about 3000 or 3100 or something like that, which is still really affordable when you're talking about full frame cinema style lenses, which can often be much, much more expensive. Very cool. And now short ends. So we have gotten to our patent pending short ends segment where we talk about our pet obsessions of the week. Ilya, what is your pet obsession this week? Well, I happen to read about our former employer, Backstage. Backstage acquired uh, a company you might be familiar with, I think you might use, called ShareGrid. Oh, Backstage yeah. bought ShareGrid a few Whoa. days ago. I have gear listed on ShareGrid. Uh, I, I don't think it's actually mentioned anywhere on ShareGrid, but it is mentioned in all these sort of like uh, press release services out there. Backstage and bought ShareGrid? That's exactly what I'm saying. Backstage, which is mostly known for being like, you know, a resource for people who are looking to crew up and that sort of thing. I think once ShareGrid started getting into like posting you know, gigs for freelancers and stuff like that, I don't know, Backstage paid attention and Backstage has been on sort of a acquisitions tear. I know they uh, acquired like Mandy last year and a couple other companies. So, yeah, they, they bought ShareGrid. 
It's so funny. Like you and I both used to write for backstage and I wrote for backstage for like five years. It's the first actual journalism I ever did. It might, I might've written for them longer and it was all thanks to our friend who hopefully will be on the show when it's uh, time to really talk soon. about best yeah. cinematography, Janelle Riley. She was an editor at backstage and she was a good friend of mine. And one day she said, Hey, would you be willing to interview Errol Morris for our web portal for free? And I was like, Fuck yeah. And uh, like, what? You get paid for that? And I guess I did a good enough job that they kept me around and they had me write a regular column on tech stuff. So I probably talked to you about that. In fact, I think you might have filled in for me for a while when I wasn't able to do it. And then Janelle left backstage years ago and, and went to Variety. And I think the last time, I, I don't know, it's probably been at least 10 years since I wrote for them. But after that, it looked like they went from being because they were originally drama log. And they were like an actor's resource and they would have like a lot of stuff about craft and stuff. And then it looked like backstage became kind of a slick industry magazine, you know, more more like somewhere between people and variety somehow. Like it's it's they completely changed their look, their feel, their editorial staff, like nothing was the same about them. And it wasn't that they were bad. It's just it was very, very different. But it's crazy to me that, that they bought ShareGrid. And, you know, I wonder what the acquisition was for. Does, does it say? Oh, they don't actually say. I kind of get the feeling it might actually be for a fairly small amount, which makes me think that maybe ShareGrid actually hasn't been as profitable as maybe the the founders hoped it would be. And so maybe that's why they, they chose to exit. I can't imagine ShareGrid isn't making money hand over fist because, you know, they charge us a surcharge on every single rental. And then they also, uh, if you get your insurance through them, they get a piece of that, too. I don't know that it's billions and billions of dollars because it's such a specialized thing. But I mean, I feel like ShareGrid, you know, like for the last 10 years, you'll always hear X is the Uber of this industry or the Airbnb, meaning there was an asset that was sitting around gathering dust and we figured out how to monetize it, how to how to make money off of it. And that is totally ShareGrid through and through. Everybody has gear that they're not using day in, day out, and they can rent it out on ShareGrid. Yeah. I know a lot of people, though, who are pretty down on ShareGrid and uh, not not just rental companies or people who would be competitors, but individual owner operators who've had bad experiences. Mm. And I know they supposedly have some sort of uh, they've improved the insurance situation for fraud, for voluntary parting. But there were quite a few people, people I, I talked to, I, I found through Facebook and stuff like this, who were really upset that their stuff got stolen or broken or whatnot. And it, it wasn't a positive experience. And I got to say that, like one of the people who was involved with it, I had a conversation with them. And they were like, oh, we really want to hear these stories. And I'm like, well, this is like public knowledge. It's all over Facebook. You don't need me to, to tell you the, the story. So it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have gear on, on ShareGrid, but I have to admit, I don't put anything like I've got a pretty good microphone, a Sennheiser 416, which is like the Honda Civic of boom mics. It's not you sure. know going to blow anyone's mind, but it's very good. And I, I don't want to put that on there because I feel like it's too small and too easy to break. I have talked about it on here before. I have like some LED lights that were not very expensive that I put on there and they've made their money back a few times over, but they didn't cost very much to begin with. I have an, an iDirect, which is kind of expensive that's on there, but it's a big piece of gear and it would be easy to break it, but you know, you'd have to be kind of a dummy to do that. So you I, know. I, I think share grid is an interesting thing. And I don't think it's like as obvious as a business case is like, you know, streaming movies and television through your internet instead of like paying for cable. I don't think it's like a total no brainer because I feel like as you kind of move up in the food chain and as you're doing better and better and more higher end work, share grid, I think offers less and less to the community. I think if you are an individual or a film student and you need to rent a $13 set of lights, 
I think chair grid's your jam. I think that's absolutely. Yeah, well, like no, I mean, I agree, but but I mean, like I have rented like some pretty big lights on there, and also you can get like whole. There's all kinds of stuff on there. You can get like whole grip trucks, electric trucks. You can get locations on there. I feel like if if you look at it more as a rental broker service and that anyone can get on it, it, it democratizes that a little bit. It also makes it so that if you go out and spend a bunch of money on a, on a piece of gear, you could get some passive income on it when you're not personally using it, depending on what it is. But yeah, I, I don't know that I would put something that was easy to destroy and not, you know, or easy to steal on I, there. I guess I, I don't know. I also feel like it there, that business model is like highly disruptible. Like I feel like someone else comes along now with another marketplace, which does a better job of vetting like the, the, the customer what's to stop all those same share grid people from listing their gear on another service or, or you know, just having it on services. both services. Have, have, exactly. Have it on it's like, the, you know, a, a lift to, to an Uber, so to speak. I mean, it's like someone else. I, I feel like, you know, once the, the grass has been flattened the path becomes a lot yeah. easier for everyone who wants to, wants a, to go down a there. film freeway to it's without a box. Yeah. I haven't seen anyone, <laughs> uh, try and do that, but, um, you know, it, it in, would, in a few it, other markets, it's happening. But but yeah, L.A., I don't I, I'm, I think there is a sort of a competitor right now. But I think that, you know, we'll we'll see what happens in the future. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a whole bunch of companies try to do something kind of like that. But, you know, maybe make it more higher end or more professional or maybe target very specific things. I, I don't I don't know. There's there's a bunch of people who do, you know, rental of equipment online now, too, via like, you know, through the mail, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. Those have been around for a while, too. Anyway, so Ben, what's your uh, what's your short end this week? What's your obsession? So my my short end is a podcast, unsurprisingly. What? Um, and it's a podcast you that to podcasts. It's a podcast that <laughs> if you're hearing my voice right now, you're listening to a podcast, jackass. No, it's a podcast. I'm sure I've talked about on here. In fact, I remember I talked about it many years ago. Called "You Must Remember This." That's sort of a, a Hollywood. Uh, this woman named Karina Longworth who I don't, I'm not sure if she's married or just in a relationship with Ryan Johnson, but she's an entertainment journalist. She's been around forever. She used to write, I think, for the LA Weekly. She's really great. Her podcast is awesome. Years ago, I got into her podcast, and I'm sure I talked about it on the show. She did a series called Charles Manson's Hollywood, and it was like just setting the scene for what Hollywood was like around the time of Manson. So it did go into the Manson killings, but it also went into a lot of detail about like Roman Polanski and uh, Dennis Hopper and uh, the movie Zabriskie Point, which I'd never seen. And I ended up watching it as a result. So so her new and and probably the other season I got the most into was about Song of the South, the Disney movie. So she has a season and it's, I think, almost finished now so you can binge it. And it's all about the Rat Pack, but specifically Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., and so you end up hearing a lot about the entirety of the Rat Pack and with her normal, like just brilliant, amazing level of uh, of research and in in-depth scouring all the biographies everybody wrote and all the all, all that stuff and specifically focusing on those two guys and not, you know, say Frank Sinatra is interesting because, you know, both of them kind of came out out of poverty Dean Martin was in this in a similar boat to Frank Sinatra in that they were both Italians and Italians were seriously looked down upon, you know, when you talk about like the 20s and 30s and Frank Sinatra didn't change his name. Dean Martin did change his name and even got a nose job. So he looked less ethnic. And she talks a lot about sort of their 
individual relationships with Frank Sinatra and how they got where they got and how mobbed up all of Hollywood was back then and also Vegas and uh, Atlantic City, all the places that they were, you know, big performers, how completely run by the mafia that stuff was. Also, in talking about Dean Martin, she talks inescapably about Jerry Lewis, and I find Jerry Lewis to be a source of enormous fascination because he's one of the top comedians of his time. Again, by the time you and I were kids, he was kind of reviled. And It's true. Uh, Although credited with creating the video tap, which also made him more beloved and more reviled. So. I know. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I think Jerry Lewis, you know, maybe one day someone will make a biopic of Jerry Lewis or something. I think he's a fascinating guy because he does sound like a bastard, but also a, a genius, but also as an entertainer. As a comedian in, in particular, you go watch his stuff and I feel like it, it does not hold up. Like it, I tried to watch, I think it was called The Bellboy or something on Canopy some months ago. And I got like 10 minutes in and I'm like, is there a part of this that's even supposed to be funny? What am I watching? I don't even know. I have no idea what I'm watching. And, and, and then, of course, you know, well known later in life for his telethons. So, you know, he's raising oh yeah. all kinds of money, money did, and doing all did, kinds a, of, yeah. did a lot of good for the world, too. But. It's interesting. I find this podcast to be fascinating, too, just because, you know, you hear about people like Mickey Rooney, who shows up in it. And just a lot of these people were like really dark, weird ass people who were sort of selling this like sunny, bright public image. And in our modern day, I guess, you know, like we have social media and it's a lot easier to see when someone's faking it that hard. And back then it was just like, eh, you know, Dean Martin leaves his wife for someone who he just met. Eh, you know, it's just it just is what it is. It's just an interesting glimpse into that kind of piece of the world, that time and place. And there's, I think, an interesting mystique around it. And one of the things Karina Longworth does, I think, really well is kind of pull back the mystique that has been put in front of you and say, well, this is what it was really like. You know, this is what it was like being married to Roman Polanski, like lose the mystery. So anyway, I think it's very, very worth checking out. And if you're into that kind of old Hollywood stuff, I feel like I keep uh, landing on stuff like that or, you know, that one about Bonfire, the vanities that I was talking about a few months ago. I, I think that I have an endless uh, reservoir of interest in not just old Hollywood, but just like bygone eras of Hollywood, even if they were only, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You know what? It may have been discussed a lot more sort of at the time, but it seems like the world's kind of moved on. And I think it's great, actually, that someone wants to dredge it up and to examine it in ways that haven't been previously gone into. And Karina Longworth's uh, famous. I mean, I, I hear people all the time talk about the sort of like long form documentary stuff that she does on her, on her show. So, you know, uh, at some point I will explore that rabbit hole. But until then, I'm going to, you know, enjoy the, the amount of time I have. So again, I would start with Charles Manson's Hollywood. It was one of the most fascinating things. And also the, the Song of the South season was just uh riveting i mean like it's just really well researched and really well done because the whole podcast for the most part it, it, it's like sometimes she'll bring in actors to voice a few things here and there but it's mostly just her talking it's just like reading a book so nice that's great i, yeah. I will definitely check it out so ben uh, i think that just about does it for all the time we have uh where can people find you if they want to connect with you outside of this podcast well i have to say it has been working uh, for me to plug that uh, go to facebook and join the group needs a werewolf i'm, I'm uh, there are, are there people who say i heard about it on the podcast and they're joining yeah. the, the well group. there are people who are joining it who i don't know and i'll click on them and it's like oh it's a cinematographer so i'm i'm presuming but uh yeah yeah we're growing it's a little community and you come on there and uh you know just kind of uh you know explain why werewolves should be in everything i think it's a pretty fair uh point 
Are, are you up to 14 people now? How many, how many people are in your... Oh, no, no. Room? I mean, like... I, 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 I'm teasing you because, of course, I know I, I joined, but, but you know what I, what, I want to I want to say we're closing in on, like, 700, I think. It Damn. Might, it it might right. be more, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, most of the people on there are probably people I know. But the interesting thing to watch a group kind of expand outside of your social group and, you know, any group that has any real staying power in Facebook, you know, obviously is way outside the social group of whoever started it. But also outside of that, please go to benrockonline.com. I may be uh, kind of revamping it a little bit in the next uh, week or so if I have the time. Nice. I have kind of, I, I've been taking notes about my plan to revamp it. But uh, you can go in there, you can see some of my work, check out my reel, read my bio, and find out all my social media contacts and, uh, you know, go to Twitter, LinkedIn or whatever and say hello. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me for the most part over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, the uh, place that is uh, sponsoring uh, the show that we're, we're listening to right now. It's been kind of a weird week uh, since getting back. I've had to, you know, dive into a bunch of stuff, but uh, I'm going to be around. I'm going to be around. So if you hear this and you want to talk about gear, if you think you might want to buy some gear or you think you just want to say hello, stop into Hot Rod Cameras. There are still a few Hot Rod Cameras t-shirts that are free and available to people who pop in and mention the podcast we are all behind plexiglass and staying far away and everyone has to wear a mask so i was, I was gonna ask like is the uh, omicron surge affecting your place of business are people coming in like what are you doing you know january is always a slightly slower time than the rest of the year it's probably mm. the the slowest month but that being said we are still getting visitors on a daily basis someone came and picked up a new red v raptor today and spent a long time building it and doing everything in our shop and we've got a very good system that we pioneered way back in 2020 to uh, stay safe and distant from from everyone and people talk about like you know the uh, the not wearing mask time I don't think we ever had a not wearing mask time at least at our shop we've always been like really very you know on the ball we want to make sure people are comfortable and so uh, so yeah it's a it's a clean well lighted place to spend money on gear and uh, do it safely and not have to worry about getting COVID and we you know everyone in our shop has uh, access to all the amount of PPE and testing that they would like. When you say it's a clean, well-lighted place, is that a Hemingway reference you're making? Is it? I, I, I don't know. I actually... I believe that's a Hemingway story. Mm. Anyway, okay. so Ilya, who do we have to thank this week? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody, who uh, is putting it all together for us. She is uh, producing the show. She is our showrunner, if, if, as you were. She is completely uh, running... Uh, oh my God, she's put done so much, I know, for coming up for uh, Sundance. She's mm. already started sticking Sundance movies. It hasn't even started yet. She's got links to Sundance movies. She's putting in front of me and like, watch this. You have, you're going to interview someone in a couple of days. So, so yeah, we're... Amazing. We're, we're, uh, yeah, we're getting and into And then that. I threw... And I threw a curveball at her, too, because I mentioned something on the show and one of the cinematographers from that thing reached out to me. And now we're going to have that person on the show. I won't say who or what, but uh, it was a thing I mentioned and she had to kind of field that. And uh, that was awesome for everyone. I, I can't wait. That'll be fun. So let, let's thank her. Fun. Let's also thank uh, Ben Katz, who's editing the, all, all this together. And I think we weren't too tough on Ben this time. I think it, we were pretty I good. Just, I just think we gave him a lot of stuff to cut out. Yeah, oh, you boy. know what? He'll, he'll, he'll probably cut down you know, one or two sentences i don't know we'll see <laughs> and uh lastly as always we should thank lastly always <laughs> lastly always lastly listening to nice. us and and shaking his fist in the sky right now Ang angry so angry at us right now case alatracci who composed every scrap of music you heard on the show you can check him out at musicbykays.com. please hire him to score one of your upcoming projects he's an amazing composer and also uh, not for nothing, a director, a visual effects artist, and a colorist. There's no reason for any of us. He, he's doing the whole thing now. 
he is he is the proverbial one man band and also not he just directed a movie with like cast and crew of, of probably a hundred so I, I mean that's that's a lot of yeah people. yeah yeah he went to atlanta and, and uh directed a whole thing yeah so uh very exciting and uh before we go i i wanted to uh make a, a stupid plug though i know last week i talked about yellow jackets this week was the season finale of yellow jackets directed by our friend eduardo sanchez oh wow okay so uh, i went to try to go watch it on hulu turns out uh, i have to subscribe to showtime to see it so i'm going to watch the first episode on the website and then i will decide on which uh which system will be the best for me to get caught up on that well i'm just excited i mean like ed is has always been a fantastic director i remember the first time i went to the university of central florida to check out their program a guy who i still know uh he's a camera guy in florida named ben lowell which uh, i always liked ben because my middle name is lowell and i thought if i put my full name uh, and middle name it would confuse everyone because there would be two ben lowells in the program but anyway (laughs) ben lowell was there watching a tape of a film called death of a lover and he said this is the best filmmaker in our program and it was directed by ed sanchez oh wow and it was like a first semester project and it was really good and ed obviously was co-director on the blair witch project but he's made uh, a bunch of features and he's been just kicking ass in television for several years now and i don't know maybe we should get ed on the show one of these days yeah let's do it 100 percent, it'll be fun i could just text him and ask him it wouldn't be a big deal <laughs> yeah 100 percent all right <laughs> all right so so ben i think that just about does it thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week Thank you for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.